On their way back to Capernaum, the twelve are argued amongst themselves as to who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Peter, James, and John proudly boasted how they had witnessed the transfiguration. And as a result, they caused the other nine to fall into the sins of envy, jealousy, and bitterness. And once they learned that the nine could not cast out the demon from the young boy, the three began to look down on them and to treat them as if they were worthless. All the while, Jesus said nothing to them. However, upon arriving at Peter's house in Capernaum, Jesus turns their argument into a teaching moment and delivers his fourth recorded sermon in Matthew, the sermon about kingdom values. Now, it was evident from their argument that they had embraced the values of the world's kingdoms. Jesus presents five values of his kingdom that they should be embracing instead. And as much they, us as well. These five values are as needed today as they were in Jesus' day. Now Jesus set forth an unlikely model for them to follow. He set before them a child to drive home these values. He explains that for someone to be a kingdom citizen, they must be like this child. They must humble themselves and repent of their sin and believe the gospel. And so we find that every kingdom citizen begins as a child of the king. Jesus then proposes humility as the first kingdom value. As humility is needed to enter God's kingdom, so humility is needed to be great in God's kingdom. And when we humble ourselves, we do so by submitting to God and by serving others. You'll remember that Peter proudly boasted, along with James and John, Those three men were not displaying humility, but pride. There was no submission to God, only a desire on their part to be lords over the other. You see, instead of desiring to be lords, they should have desired to serve others. Undoubtedly, this value came to Peter's mind when he wrote these words in 1 Peter 5.3. To the church elders, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain but with eagerness, nor yet, here it is, as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. We need to be humble. Jesus next proposes guarding against sin as the second kingdom value. Remember, all the disciples fell into sin. Hence, Jesus exhorts them to do whatever is necessary to remove anything in their life that would cause them to stumble or sin. However, they were all guilty. But three of them were far worse off. Three of them were guilty of enticing the other nine to sin. Peter, James, and John sinned of their own accord, but then they enticed the others to sin. Because of their sin. Folks, if we entice or tempt another believer to sin, it is grievous. It is so grievous that Jesus says you deserve something far worse than drowning. And he explains in very clear language that regardless if you proclaim to be a believer, if you are perpetually tempting or enticing another believer to sin, he is going to cast you into the lake of fire 
where you will be spiritually, physically, and mentally tormented forever. Now again, not only had Peter, James, and John enticed these others to sin, but they were also guilty of despising the other nine. They looked down on the other nine because of their inability to cast out the demon. And friends, too often we are guilty of doing the same thing. Of despising or having contempt for or treating another believer as worthless or inferior. Again, Jesus commands us not to despise one another. Because we are all children of God. We are all God's children. And God has charged His angels with guarding and caring for His children. So when we mistreat, despise, show contempt for another believer, what have we done? Besides breaking the command of Jesus, we have set ourselves at odd with the holy angel tasked with guarding or protecting that believer. Jesus proposes that we must pursue the lost. Pursuing the lost is the third kingdom value out of this admonition. And the lost in the context of Matthew 18 is not referring to the unsaved. The lost refers to the fellow believer who has wandered or strayed into sin. You know, it is a sad state to think that when a believer strays, most believers do one of two things. They either ignore the sin or they ignore the believer. Neither of those reactions is biblical. Instead, Jesus says we must pursue them in order to restore them. No excuse is to be made. But how do we do that? How do we undertake this ministry of rescue and restoration? Listen, this rescue ministry can be summed up in one word. One word. And that word is discipline. Here, Jesus sets forth discipline as the fourth kingdom value that we need to recover and embrace. Discipline is valuable because it is the method for rescuing straying believers. So in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, Jesus provides the plan and the prerogative for discipline. We have the plan and the prerogative for discipline. Now in verses 15 to 17, we're going to look at the plan for disciplining strained believers. And then in verses 18 to 20, we're going to see the prerogative for disciplining strained believers. But let's begin in verse 15 of Matthew 18. Matthew 18 and verse 15, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Again, here in Matthew 18, 15 to 17, Jesus provides the plan for disciplining the strained believer. Now, he's just explained some believers will wander into sin. But he now says, if your brother sins, who is our brother? The term brother, Adelphos, often refers to a sibling, but it can also refer to a member of the same fellowship. 
So here the brother is a fellow believer. Notice if. The if is joined with the subjunctive verb sins, meaning it's a third class conditional clause showing possibility or probability. In other words, Jesus says, on the occasion or when your brother sins, your fellow believer sins, here is the plan for rescuing them. Here's the plan. Now, before we go further, let's define sin. What is sin? Now, the verb sins here, harmatano, means to miss the mark or to come short of a target. In Romans 3.23, Paul declares what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's glory is His holiness. So when we sin, we fall short of God's holiness. Did not God command us in Leviticus 11.44 to be holy as He is holy? That's the mark. That's the standard. And when we miss that standard, we have sinned. God has given His law to us to teach us how to be holy in our day-to-day lives. Now, as we develop a definition of sin, let's, no, let's put down a number of things that are sin. Number one, to violate God's law is a sin. If we violate God's law, we have sinned. John says in 1 John 3, 4, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So if I don't obey God's law, I have sinned. So anytime you break God's law, you've sinned. Listen, number two, failure to do what is right is a sin. If you fail to do what is right, you have sinned. James says in James 4.17, To the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So, again, if you do not do what is right, you have sinned. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean that you did something wrong, as in you broke God's law. But it could be an issue of ethics, okay? While the Bible doesn't specifically say don't do this or do that, but there's an issue here that you know ethically because of the principles of Scripture, doing this doesn't violate a clear command, but it definitely would violate my conscience. Guess what? If you don't do what is right, you have sinned. Building on that, number three, if you violate your biblical beliefs, you have sinned. Paul explains in Romans 14, 23, whatever is not from faith is sin. So if you violate your conscience, you have sinned. He goes on, John says in 1 John 5, 17, All immorality, all unrighteousness is sin. Immorality is sin. If you're committing immorality, what have you done? You have sinned before God. But you know what? It doesn't stop just there with the acts. It's not only the acts that are sin, but our thoughts can be sinful. Listen to the words of Proverbs 24, verse 9. The devising of folly is sin. So you say, well, I've never committed an act of sin. Well, I question that, okay? We've all sinned, the Bible says. But let's say you're convinced you haven't committed an act of sin. If you've had any kind of evil thought, even for just a fleeting moment, you are guilty of sin. So if you violate God's law, fail to do what's right, violate your biblical beliefs, commit immorality, or even think evilly, guess what? You're guilty of sin. 
And so the sobering reality is that all of us have sinned, all of us are sinning, and all of us will sin. Praise God, He doesn't allow us to continue in sin. He pursues and rescues the wandering sheep, the straying child. And folks, He expects each and every one of us to do the same with our spiritual siblings. And the plan for rescuing them is discipline. Now the plan for discipline is a four-step process. I pray we don't have to get past step one. But sometimes we do. So let's begin. Step one. The first step in the discipline, discipline plan is privately confronting and correcting the sinning believer. Step one. Confront and correct the sinning believer. Notice what Jesus says here in the text. Go and show him what? His fault. His offense. His sin. Now notice there's two commands for you and I. Go and show. Go, hapago, commands every one of us to pursue the lost or the straying believer. Just as God pursues his sinning children, we are to be pursuing our brethren who sins. And why does God pursue them? Because wandering sheep do not naturally wander back into the sheepfold on their own accord. You got, he has to go out and find them and bring them back. And so too, we must do the same. Because God has commanded us to go, failure to pursue a sinning believer means we are guilty of sin. You see, my friend, if you know a believer, your brother or sister in Christ is sinning, you have a responsibility to go and confront them and correct them. And if you don't, you're guilty of sin. We cannot be indifferent towards the sins of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not be deceived and think that confronting a sinner is a job only for the elders of the church. The command to go and show is for all believers. It's for all believers. Notice the second command there. Show. Show. Elegeko. What does that mean? It means confront and correct them for their error. Confront and correct. It's going to become very evident as we go through this text this morning that confrontation is going to be necessary in order to rescue a sinning brother. You're not going to rescue that sister, that brother in Christ, unless you confront them. But the goal of confrontation should always be correction, not condemnation. I think too often we go to them, we confront them, and we condemn them. No, we first must confront and correct them. And here is where Jesus agreed with the Jewish law, which taught that correction should always precede punishment, and it should continue until the sinner repents. Now, thinking on the term of correction or reproving, God commands us to correct or reprove our fellow believers. In Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 17, Yahweh commands, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You must surely reprove your neighbor. Notice what he said there. Don't hate them, but reprove them. In other words, God says, If you refuse to correct a sinning believer... It is a form of hatred. Not correcting our brother or sister in Christ is a form of hatred. 
Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, I what? Reprove and discipline. See, if a, God says, if I love you, I discipline you, I reprove you, I correct you. So if we love our brother or sister, that means we're going to pursue them, we're going to warn them, we're going to rescue them from spiritual danger. We're not going to keep our mouth shut. We're not going to ignore it. But notice two little words here. Jesus emphasizes that this confrontation is to be what? In private. Even the rabbis taught that correction should be private and only taken before others if necessary. And why do we deal with them in private? Because it staves off gossip. It staves off the potential of ruining their reputation. And ultimately, the fewer people involved makes the restoration process less traumatizing for all involved. Now to the act of confrontation and correction. How do we do that? Well, we're to do it in a spirit of love and gentleness. Paul asks this in 1 Corinthians 4.21, Who do you desire, or what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Believers, listen, you and I, we need to consider, how would we, how would you, how would I, want to be confronted with our sin? Well, I'd, I'd want to be confronted lovingly and gently. I don't want to be confronted with a rod. That word gentleness, protes, means to be even-tempered and to speak mildly. You know, too often when we confront our brothers or sisters in sin, we, we do it in anger. Listen, heed the warning of James. In chapter 1 and verse 19 and 20, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Listen, you can have all the right words, but if you deliver them in the wrong way, you're going to derail any attempt to accomplish correction. The goal in confrontation, the goal in correcting, is repentance and restoration. That's what we're after. We're going to them. We want to rescue them. We want to get them restored back to fellowship. We want them to repent. And by the way, I want you to notice here that nowhere in the Scripture does it mandate how long this process should take. It doesn't say. It's open-ended. But I will tell you this. The present tense of the verb go implies a gentle, patient series of confrontations. In other words, you're going to them not one time. There's a ser- you're going to them over a series of times to bring them to this place of repentance. Now, every situation is different. But I would urge you not to rush to condemnation. I would urge you to prayerfully consider when it is time to move on to step two. So don't have the attitude, well, I went and told them and confronted them and told them they were wrong and they didn't repent, so, man, I'm going right to step two. No. All right, the Bible says, indicates that there has to be a series of confrontations before we move on to step two. Now, Jesus says, if he listens, you have won your brother. The term listens, akuo, means to hear and heed, or listen and obey. In other words, there's an implication that they respond to the correction with an acknowledgement of their sin and repentance. If he listens, if he repents, you've won your brother. Now that word won is interesting. Cardano, 
It's the idea of rescuing someone from spiritual ruin. To rescue someone from spiritual ruin. If they listen, if they repent, you have rescued them. Listen to the words of James 5, 19 to 20. If any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know this, that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. Do you hear that? You'll cover a multitude of sin by rescuing them. Rescuing a strained believer is what love is. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So if we don't confront them, it's because we hate them. If we do love them, we will confront them. And when we confront and correct them, guess what? We're going to rescue them from spiritual ruin. But I also want to give you another definition for the verb one. It also means to gain back something valuable that was lost. To gain back something valuable that was lost. Remember in the previous uh, pericope, Jesus said that the strange sheep was what? He said the strange sheep was lost. Now, because it was lost, what did the shepherd do? He didn't ignore it. He went after it. Why? Because the sheep is valuable. The sheep is so valuable that the shepherd pursues the lost sheep until he is found. And so too, a believer's value to God causes him to pursue them until they are found. That's great, isn't it? That when you stray, God loves you and values you so much that he is going to pursue you until he finds you. So too, we ought to be doing the same. We ought to love and value one another as because we're all children of God. We're spiritual siblings that we will want to pursue one another until we rescue them from sin and restore them to fellowship. So I challenge you. Consider whether you love and value one another enough to confront and correct their sin. Step one. Confront and convict the believing or the sinning believer. Step two. Confirm the facts against the sinning believer. Confirm the facts against the sinning believer. Now the second step in the discipline plan is confirming these facts. Jesus says, if he does not listen to you. In other words, you only initiate step two when the private confrontation and correction are unsuccessful. If the first step fails, and hopefully it doesn't, but if it does, because sheep are dumb, or hard-headed. Jesus says, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now this admonition here, if you notice, is based on God's law. Jesus is quoting the law. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 says, On the evidence of two or three witnesses, he, he who is to die shall be put to death. He will not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which has been committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. You see, the law presumes these witnesses are eyewitnesses, okay? They, they saw the sin. 
Now, when the Pharisees accused the woman of adultery, in John 8 and verse 11, Jesus asked the woman this, Where are the eyewitnesses? Did not one condemn you? Oh, Lord, oh, she's committed adultery. Well, where are the witnesses? Prove it. And so because there were no eyewitnesses, Jesus said in verse 11 of John 8, I do not condemn you either. Go and sin what? No more. Proof point is this. A single witness is insufficient to find someone guilty of sin. A lone witness may be guilty of some disingenuous reason for accusing the other person of wrongdoing. Listen to the words of Deuteronomy 19.16. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. So you want to bear false witness? Guess what? What you want to do to him is coming back on you. Okay? Believer, that means we ought to beware. Beware of accusing one another of sin or offenses. Listen, unless you have witnessed the sin or offense, mind your business and shut your mouth. I'll say it again. Unless you have witnessed the sin, mind your business, shut your mouth. Because if we're accusing others of sin without the facts, guess what? We're guilty of bearing false witness. We're guilty of bearing false witness. Well, what if, you, what if you heard and then you told somebody else? Well, if you're spreading accusations or allegations against someone, now you are guilty of what? Gossip. If you have bore false witness, if you have gossiped, the Bible says these things are abominations before God. He hates those who bear false witness. He hates those who spread gossip amongst, his, amongst the brethren. God says in Proverbs 6, 16 and 19, there are six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination, a false witness who utter lies, and one who spreads strife amongst brothers. That idea of strife is spreads gossip. So you come along... And you heard somebody sinned. You didn't see it. You didn't witness it, but you heard it. And then you went to somebody else. I heard such and such. You're guilty of false witnessing and you're guilty of gossip. Two things that the Lord considers abominations. Now, to the idea of these witnesses... That two or three are required implies that while, while discipline should be as private as possible, there has to be an, an area or a time where evidence or eyewitnesses of the sin have to be gathered. Okay? Now again, you went to them one-on-one -on -one in private, and that didn't work. Okay? Now you're at a place where, okay, I need to bring in two or three others who are eyewitnesses to this sin. 2 Corinthians 13.1 says, Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Folks, listen. When an accusation is made, it has to be investigated and confirmed. 
Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.19, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Folks, accusations fly all around. Okay, We live in a day and age uh, where you, know, you can accuse somebody and destroy their whole life with an accusation. The Bible says no, not in the church. Okay? If somebody's making an accusation, there better be two or three witnesses to back it up. Otherwise, guess what? It don't exist. Okay? Now, why two or three eyewitnesses? Well, an eyewitness can confirm that the sinner offense has occurred. You know, it is possible that the accused person has actually not sinned. Maybe, just maybe, the accuser is malicious. Maybe they're wrong. So the eyewitness can confirm whether the sin has occurred. They also confirm that the sinning believer is aware of their sin. Okay? You know, don't say, well, so-and-so sent. Well, do they even know it? Did you tell them? Did you confront them? The eyewitnesses can confirm that. The eyewitness can also confirm whether or not there's been repentance. And I also think that eyewitnesses can help to lovingly and gently mediate the confrontation. You know, sometimes when you're in the position of being the accuser or being the accused, you know, tempers are going to be there, Okay. You know, the, the things can move from being very calm to not calm. And so having these two or three there can help mediate that situation. Now, say, Pastor, what happens in a situation where there is no eyewitness to this sin? It is a sin. I saw it, but there's no other eyewitnesses. What am I to do? How do I implement step two? I believe in that situation, you need to find two or three spiritually mature believers who can witness the confrontation and correction that's taking place. Now, this comes from the synagogue. In the synagogue, two or three of the elders would serve as a tribunal to oversee issues dealing with those who had committed sins. And I believe that should be the same of the elders of the church. Uh, in a situation where there are not eyewitnesses, in, a situa- in that kind of a setting, you could come to one of the, or two of the church elders and say, listen, I need two or three of you to come and help mediate this situation. Again, the elders can confirm the sin has occurred. Uh, They can urge the guilty party to repent. They can help mediate and resolve the issue at hand. And let me speak to the elders on this issue. When you are asked to serve in such a capacity, discretion and privacy must be maintained. If you fail to keep the issue private, if you gossip to others, you're guilty of sin and now you are going to be disciplined. Okay? Keep it quiet is the principle. Now what happens if after doing step two, he doesn't repent? Well, now we move to the third step. Now my prayer is that first step would work Second step would hopefully work. But you know, there are cases where some people are just hard-hearted. Step three. The third step in the discipline plan is communicating with the church. So step three, communicate with the church. Communicate with the church. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, and the verb refuses to listen, parakuo, means they ignored the admonition. The sinning believer did not heed the correction of the witnesses. He refused to repent of his sin. And so at that point, the matter has to be brought to the church's attention. Notice what Jesus says. Tell it to the church. Now the first step was what? Private. 
The second step is semi-private. But the third step is now public. Now let's define who or what is the church. The term church, ecclesia, refers to the congregation of the faithful. I think that's an interesting definition for ecclesia. The congregation, the assembly of the faithful. In other words, the church is not a building. The church is the, are those people who identify themselves with the local church and commit themselves to it. We might use the term membership. Okay, People who are identified and committed to the local church. Again, church does not identify a building. Nor does it apply to anybody who walks through the door. Okay. The church, as defined here, are those identifying with the church and committing to it, i.e. a group, specific group or membership. And so the informing the church is not to be done in a public worship service, but a specially called meeting of the faithful, of the members. That's who we're telling. You know, this whole idea that, oh, so-and-so sinned, I'm going to make them come up in front of the entire church and confess their sin, that is not biblical. I cannot stress enough that there is no verse of Scripture where somebody is required when they've sinned to stand in front of the entire church in a worship service in the beginning, the end, whatever, and confess their sin. That goes against everything in Scripture. First of all, listen... If somebody was in sin and you went and confronted them and they repented of it, it's dead, it's done. Nothing more needs to be said. And if somebody comes to you and says, well, didn't so-and-so sin? Listen, that's none of your business. Stay in your lane. They repented, it's done. Even if we went to step two. And when we get here to step three, again, it's not to tell everybody in the church. It's to tell the membership, the people who are identified as the faithful. And it's not for the faithful then to go out of the member meeting and tell everybody. Now, besides the membership, are there anyone else, is there any other groups that should be included in a public communication? Yes. Yes. I think there are at least three others. Number one, if there is someone, anyone, who could be harmed or misled by the actions of this individual, they need to be notified. You know, think in cases of abuse or endangerment or something of that nature. We have a responsibility to protect people. Okay. Number two, there may be an individual or group that could be instrumental in bringing the believer to repentance. They should be included. You know, sometimes there are situations that are beyond our own ability and there's nothing wrong with going outside to find someone who may be trained in a particular area. Okay. And third, depending upon the sin, the proper authorities should be notified. Again, abuse, endangerment, things of that nature. You know, we don't, we don't cover those things up, okay? They need to be done properly. Now, notifying these individuals is not the responsibility of the congregation of the faithful. It's at the elders' discretion. And I believe that elders need to prayerfully, with great care and concern and legal guidance, be... Uh, handle those situations delicately and discreetly. Again, when we have to inform, and we're only informing the church when the person, after a series of confrontations, has refused to repent, then we let them know. But again, with the utmost discretion and care. And the only information that needs to be shared with the members is the sin committed, the steps we've taken to correct the issue, and the failure to repent. 
and then encourage the members to pursue and plead with the sinning believer to repent. Let's remember, at this point, what is our goal? What was our goal in step one? What's our goal in step two? What's our goal in step three? It is to bring the sinning believer to repentance and reconciliation. What happens if this doesn't work? What happens when we've now told the members and the person still refuses to hear their, to what the, their pleas? Here's the fourth step. Step four, censure the sinning believer. Censure the sinning believer. Here's the fourth step in that discipline plan. Jesus commands, if he refuses to listen even to the church. Notice the word refuses to listen. Same word we just saw, parakuo. If he ignores the church's pleading, if he refuses to repent, he is to be what? Treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now from a Jewish perspective, a Gentile was a pagan, unregenerate person. And again, a tax collector was a traitor of the Jewish people and a loyalist to Rome. They treated the tax collectors as outcast. So, Jesus' command involves viewing the unrepentant believer as what? An unregenerate outcast. Now, I would assume and pray that the first three steps would have worked. But there are occasions when it doesn't. And when we have to get to this fourth step, where they've refused to listen to everybody and anybody, then and only then do we treat them as they're unregenerate. You've got to treat them like they're unsaved. What does that mean? Let's look at 1 Corinthians, 15, or 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11 to 13. Paul commands the church, I wrote to you, do not associate with any so-called brother if he is immoral, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such a one. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Nothing. I don't judge those who are outside, but I do judge those within the church. Remove the wicked man from amongst yourselves. How does Paul treat this unrepentant believer? He treats them as a so-called brother. See, they claim to be a believer, but they're not behaving as a believer. Their profession is now in question. Now, what does it mean to treat them as an unregenerate outcast? Well, it means do not associate with them. What's that mean? Does that mean I cut off all contact? No. What it means, though, is if we have a quote-unquote believer who is refusing to repent of their sin after going multiple times through this whole series, then we are not to engage them, we're not to associate with them in spiritual matters. That means they don't partake in worship, They don't partake in fellowship. They don't partake in prayer time. They don't partake in the Lord's Supper. Okay? That's what that means. Well, that's mean. No, that's love. How's that love? Well, let me take the issue of the Lord's Supper for a moment. Paul says, let each person examine themselves, then let them eat of this bread and drink of this cup. But if a person can't examine themselves, if they look at themselves, well, I'm, I'm I'm not repenting of this sin. Listen, he goes on to say if a person doesn't judge themselves, they're bringing damnation on themselves, and some are sick among you, some are dead even, because they took communion in an unworthy fashion. 
Listen, if we got a brother or sister who's in sin, and they're refusing to repent of their sin, you just don't leave it up to them whether to choose not to or to partake. You have the responsibility to prohibit them from taking it. Because you don't want to see them sick. You don't want to see them dead because they did it in an unworthy manner. That's love. Okay? Oh, I've got a cancerous growth on my leg. Oh, it's going to hurt to remove it. That's stupidity. The loving thing you would do for yourself is what? Get it removed. Furthermore, Paul says, and he quotes Deuteronomy 13.5 when he says this, those who continually refuse to repent are wicked, evil, immoral people, and they must be removed. The word removed, exaro, excommunicate that person from the church. That's not to embarrass, doesn't mean to embarrass them. It means don't allow them to partake in worship, fellowship, prayer, and communion. That doesn't mean you cut off all communication. But when you have opportunity to communicate with them, guess what? You need to admonish them to repent when you have opportunity. And so there's the plan. It's a four-step plan to rescue a believer. To be very honest and very frank, if the Holy Spirit indwells them, I don't think you're going to get past the third step. Occasionally you might get to the third step. But in my experience, limited as it may be, I find that by the time you get to the fourth step, it's telling you something. The Holy Spirit's not there. Okay? Because the Holy Spirit's going to prick them. The Holy Spirit's going to constantly be working. Even if they've grieved the Holy Spirit, that doesn't prohibit the Holy Spirit from still grieving them or still being grieved by them. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, again, because we don't know at what point God may cut them off, we still have a responsibility to keep admonishing them to come and repent and uh, be restored. Now, let's go to verses 18 to 20. Verses 18 to 20. We have the prerogative for discipling straying believers. And I'm going to read this, and then we're going to put an end to it, and we'll pick this up, verses 18 and 20, next time. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. We're going to explore this next week, this prerogative for discipling. You know, you're saying, Pastor, listen, I hear that plan, and I understand what the plan is, but what authority do I have? What prerogative, you know allows me to do this and engage in this. Because, you know, this just seems so hard, so, so terrible, so difficult. So we're going to explore verses 18 to 20 at length next time. But to this issue, to these four steps, we do have a responsibility that if we see our brother sinning, when they're in sin, we need to confront them. And we need to confront them lovingly. We need to confront them gently. And it may take time. And there may be a series of confrontations, but we do so because we love them. Failure to, failure to rescue is equivalent to hate in God's sight. Discipline is valuable. It is the, this is God's means for rescuing strained believers. Rescuing begins with repentance. Once repentance occurs, then restoration can begin. Listen, we, we don't correct them to condemn them. We correct them to bring about repentance and repentance to bring about restoration. And therefore I would charge you, I would admonish you, pursue the strain, confront them, correct them with love and gentleness. And when they repent, let's work towards their restoration. 
Father God in heaven, Lord, I thank and praise you for the word that you've given to us. Father, for this admonition, the responsibility we have here, this plan to embrace. And Father, I ask and pray through your Son's name that, Father, we will obey. And Father, if we see our brother or sister in sin, we will go and show them. We'll go to them, Father. We'll pursue them. We won't just, just casually mention something, but Father, we'll pursue them with, with love and not leave off until they know we love them, until they know they've sinned, until they know they need to confess it and forsake it. Father, give us the grace to do it. Give us the grace to confront and correct. Lord, help us not to correct out of an angry spirit, but a spirit of gentleness, of humility, of even-mindedness. Lord, guard our tongues. Keep us from anger. Even the right, though the words may be right, if our attitude is wrong, we have failed to correct them biblically. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who's in sin, someone here today, Father, who has strayed, I pray that someone who may be aware of it would go to them lovingly, carefully, gently, and confront them and correct them. And I pray that your spirit indwelling them would give them no rest and no peace until they come to repentance. And Father, I pray that when every, everyone in this room who, who sins repents, that Father, they'll be restored. Even King David, after being confronted privately by Nathan regarding his sin, when he repented, was not cast off, was not set on the shelf, he was restored back to his kingship. May we follow that example with one another. Lord, we give you the thanks and the praise to handle your word and to deal with these delicate issues. And we commit these things to you. Amen.